So hopefully everybody's found the page for Deuteronomy. So chapter 5, verses 1 through 17. Moses summoned all Israel and said, Hear, Israel, the decrees and the laws I declare in your hearing today. Learn them and be sure to follow them. The Lord our God made a covenant with us at Horeb. It was not with our ancestors that the Lord made his covenant, but with us, with all of us who are alive here today. The Lord spoke to you face to face out of the fire on the mountain. At that time, I stood between the Lord and you to declare to you the word of the Lord, because you were afraid of the fire and did not go up to the mountain. And he said, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on earth below or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy, as the Lord your God has commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your ox, your donkey, or any of your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns, so that your male and female servants may rest, as you do. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt, and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. Honor your father and mother, as the Lord your God has commanded you, so that you may live long and that it may go well with you in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. So we're going to jump over to Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 to 26. That's page 969. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly I tell you, you, you will not get out until you have paid the, the last penny. Thanks, Michael. Well, my name is Jack. I'm one of the leaders here at church. And before we begin, let's, let's pray. Lord, we, we need your help this morning. We just would invite your 
Holy Spirit to be at work. May these not be words in and out of our ears, but may we believe this place changed by your work. Amen. Amen. Well, um, when I was around 13, 14 years old, a computer game came out that me and every teenager I knew were obsessed with. Already, I can see some smiles in the audience. Anyone else a fan of The Sims? Yeah, unashamedly. Um, from a Google, I've actually found that it's still going. It's probably on its like 50th version by now. But for those of you that are uh, too young to appreciate this, I've just completely missed it. Imagine it as like the modern day Candy Crush. People were obsessed with it. People loved it. And the premise was that you controlled the life of a person. You decided what job they had, what food they could eat, when they could eat, when they could sleep. You even were in control of who they were allowed to be friends with. So instead of me and my peers going out and enjoying being friends and seeing that big yellow thing in the sky, we were inside controlling people not doing those things as well. And you were basically lord of this world. You decided everything. And as the game got harder, um, the game got harder as you went along, and I usually would have a family of four, and as the game got on, I just, I wasn't very good at the game, and I couldn't do everything that they needed to to thrive and survive. Um, so you make tough decisions. One of them has to go. And in the first version, um, the, there wasn't an easy way to ditch them, so you had to get creative about it. So my preference was you built four walls around the person and just forgot about them, or... Um, the other option was that you just accidentally set a room on fire. It, it solved your issue. You were down to three people and you could play the game again. And my hours of playing The Sims has taught me that, well, no one should ever let me be in control of their life. <laughs> See, at best, you might get to eat once a week. And at worst, well, you may have a very tragic microwave accident. So why am I sharing to you about The Sims today other than just nostalgia? Well, we are continuing our look at the Ten Commandments, the Ten Words, as the Bible puts it. And today we are on the sixth word, do not murder. And I think my experience with The Sims is sadly a miniature version of the world that we often find ourselves living in. See, there isn't a day goes by where we don't see that the news is covered with war, famine, death, cruelty on an international level. We live in a really messed up world. But as we look at this word together this morning, we are going to see that God intends something so much better. See, you and I are commanded. No, no, we're invited to be part of something so much better. So, let's move on to our first point this morning. This command is a good one. It, not just because it's nice to be able to leave the house and go to the shops without fear of getting killed. I'm on board with that, I agree, that's a good thing. But it's good because it paints the picture of the creation that God intends. See, the world that Israelites lived in, where they'd been slaves of Pharaoh, where their value was based only on their usefulness. The old were left to die because, well, they couldn't carry the rocks anymore, and the young their value was based on what future potential they had rather than anything innate about them. See, like my game of The Sims and like the world that we live in, we live in a really messed up place. See, we put a high value on ourselves and on the things that I think are important, but we forget the value of other people. Only yesterday it came out in the news that um, we are looking to tag refugees. We're planning to put those people who are most at risk, most vulnerable, and tag them. 
I'm not making a political point there, but our value is different. Yet here God commands, says, do not murder. He doesn't give an explanation of it in this passage because he's already done that back in Genesis chapter 1, the very first chapter of the Bible. And he says that you and I were made in his image. See, we are images. Where images are created to image. So if you create an image of someone, if you make a sculpture of someone, you do it to display something about that someone. You put, if you put them in the middle of Liverpool One or Sefton Park, you want people to look at it, to notice it, to think about that, to think about that person. Now God has created around 8 billion images of himself all around the world. Why? Well, he's created us in his image so that we would display, we would reflect, we would communicate who he is, how great he is and what he is like. And as we are made in his image, every single person has the same inherent worth, the same value. Our value is not dictated by our race, our ethnicity. It doesn't matter how you vote or what your health or disability. It doesn't matter your age or your infirmities. It doesn't matter whether you're really irritating or not, or even what team you support. See, every single person has that same inherent value and worth because we're created to represent God. And if we murder someone, we are saying this person's life is not valuable. See, we find ourselves trying to play God and only he has the right to decide what happens. To attack someone is to assault the very image of God. Before these laws, they would have been left to make their own justice in the world. And as you read God's word, you see that he introduces a radical rule for this ancient generation. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. In other words, the punishment must fit the crime. If someone steals my toothbrush, I am not allowed to go out and murder them as a form of justice. See, he wants his image bearers to bear his image. We're going to go further into that in a minute, but it's worth us taking a slight detour on this command. The command is do not murder. Some uh, versions of your Bibles may even say do not kill. But this command is against murder, not killing. The next hundred pages of your Bible or so are filled with lots of rules about when is it okay to take life. For instance, it doesn't prohibit killing in self-defense. If a thief breaks into your house in the middle of the night and you fear for your life and the thief dies, you are not guilty of murder. But if I track them down the next day in Aldi and murder them while they're holding a load of potatoes, that is murder, Exodus 22. My paraphrase, Aldi is not mentioned in the Bible. <laughs> but murder is an assault on God's image. That's why it is so serious. If you murder someone, then the Bible allows capital punishment as a means of defending that image. See, life is precious. It's above our pay grade to say when it can be taken from someone else. And this would have been wonderfully freeing to the Israelites. The Israelites were to be a billboard for God. When they obey these words, their lives become a living indication, an image of the Heavenly Father amongst the nations of the earth. See, they're then a point to what God is like, just like Adam did in the garden. A society dominated by disrespect for parents, workaholism, violence, envy, theft, and murder. It's not free, is it? 
The Israelites had experienced that in Egypt and our society has that same experience today. See, the Ten Commands are not really Ten Commands at all, but freedoms. Where we're free, we're free when we become who we were made to be, a God imager. And each of these last five commands is an extension of do not murder. I'm stealing Mo and Josh's thunder for the next week, but here's a spoiler. Do not assault the image of God by killing, violating marriage, seizing another's property. In fact, Jesus takes this further for us in the second reading that Michael read for us this morning in Matthew 5. He zooms in on the root cause of murder. In verse 22, he says it's anger. Anger is the real issue. See, Jesus says if we tackle our murder issues at the source, our anger, then we will start to be the type of image carriers he has made us to be. We're to take our anger and we're to seek reconciliation, to seek peace long before it gets to a fight. We're talking a lot about anger this morning, so it's worth saying now there are two types, righteous and unrighteous. See, anger is a natural passion. There are cases where it is lawful and right. And it's lawful and right when we are angry about the things that oppose God in the world without being motivated by our sin. But I know my own heart, and I know that most of my anger is not that righteous anger, no matter how I paint it. See, most of our anger is just without a just cause. We've got no good end aimed at. See, righteous anger should, should awaken the offender to repentance and not only exceed what is necessary for that. This command, guys, is it's a gift from God. It's a challenge to us. Where to go and take the life he's given it and go and actually enjoy it. The Israelites were meant to be this billboard to the nations. And we are too. To go and be billboards for life wherever we are. This command is good and it's meant to cause us to long for a world without broken image carriers. Well, I wonder if you have ever um, watched one of those hoarder programs on TV. See, I, I secretly love them because I get to have a nosy in on people's life. Um, and we've see, re watched this one recently. Stacey Solomon, sort your life out. And I love it because I nosy in on people's life. I see what they do. You know, that guy that lost a shoe 10 years ago but still has held on to the other one just in case it turns up. You know, that sort of program. And whilst I am relatively tidy, my two children have, have an insane gifting at making mess. It is, it is a gifting they've got no matter what they're in. They're particularly good at leaving out those tiny pieces of Lego for you to stand on in the dark at 3 a.m. in the morning. Just, they're just gifted. But as we watch these hoarder programs, and as I look around at the mess that my kids have left, I can say, well, <laughs> we're not that bad, are we? I'm, I mean, I'm not like them. That's not me. See, I use that then as an excuse to just leave all the mess because I'm not as bad as the people on TV. And as we go through this series of Ten Commandments, the Ten Words, there's probably been very few sermons where you thought, boom, nailed it, I've got this one sorted, I'm going to sit back and relax and let all these other sinners deal with this. I don't need to hear this sermon. But my fear is that this one, this is the one that we can uh, assume that we're not in danger of. This is the one that we can think, no, I don't need to hear this, I've not murdered anyone, I'm safe. But as we've just seen in our first point this morning, Jesus in Matthew 5, he changes our viewpoint. He says it's not just about physically killing someone, 
But he points out that our anger is the issue. See, you can be 100% murder-free, but still face the wrath of God in your life if your life is marked by anger, bitterness, insult, and rage. Jesus says, everyone who is angry and calls his brother a fool is liable to hell. That's heavy. In other words, no Christian can stand in judgment over anyone else who has broken this commandment. From murder to abortion, however anybody might have broken this sixth commandment, because we are all guilty in this room of breaking this command. We need to take this seriously. We're all made in God's image and we all have this inherent value. That's why it's wrong to take life. See, my value is not based on anything I can do or say. It's based on him. Our anger against other image bearers, it breeds all types of violence. It says, you are not valuable. See, by our anger, we're saying we don't think life is God's. We're made in his image and only he has the right to say what our value is. Calling someone a fool, insulting them, see, it's devaluing their image. And that is above our pay grade. We have no right to say to any of God's images which are good and which aren't. Yet how often do you find yourself losing your temper? We hold on to this anger, don't we? It churns beneath the surface, ready for it to lash out at the smallest provocation of how my personal viewpoint says the world should run. And this seed of anger, it's going to look different in all of us. We are all wonderfully different and we all have our own leanings. Let me share a couple of thought provokers for you of how that might happen in your own life. What causes you to snap? What gets beneath the surface and causes you to lash out verbally or mentally? Here are a few things. Road rage. You know that car that cuts you up because their journey is more important than yours? I can't count the number of times I have shouted at someone. See, my anger doesn't seek their repentance. It seeks vigilante justice. I see myself as the Batman of the Green Cross Code. See, I lose sight that their driving doesn't dictate their value. Being made in the image of God does. Snapping at people, maybe that's you. I, I'm a professional at snapping at my kids. It's 4 a.m. in the morning, my two-year-old has a blanket that she refuses to go to bed without. It is smaller than her body and it has fallen off her body and she needs me to put it back on three times in the night, and I, I snap. See, my anger undervalues her God-given image. For you, it might be your spouse, your housemate, your friend, maybe a past partner, or just someone at work. Maybe your anger comes out in ambition. See, what we paint as a worthy desire, and I'm excellent at painting myself as worthy, but really, is it just envy and a desire to pull down our competitors? But perhaps for some here today, the idea of being angry with others in those ways, just you would never do that. But God says you have inherent value. But perhaps you're the one that undervalues that in yourself. Perhaps you've got thoughts of self-harm or suicide. You say, I have no value, but God says you do. God says you are not allowed to think of yourself so lowly as that. You wouldn't dream of insulting someone else and undervaluing someone else, but you would undervalue yourself. You would harm yourself. 
God says that is a sin. You have value, not in yourself, but in him. And if you're struggling with thoughts of self-harm and suicide this morning, we're a church family. We love each other. We want to help you through that. This is not something that you go through alone. Speak to a trusted friend here this morning. Speak to someone on the staff team. Speak to one of the church leaders. We, we would love to help you. Don't go through that battle alone. This battle is not one to be fought solo. See, the Old Testament said the punishment for murder was death. But Jesus here is saying that your anger is just as serious and it is worthy of the same punishment. Do you believe that? I mean, do you really take that seriously? See, Jesus says, if not, you are in danger of the fire of hell. We need to take it seriously. So what should we do? Well, verse 23 says, Jesus says, if you are on your way to the temple and get to the altar to give your offering and remember a brother is angry with you, don't finish the offering. But first go and reconcile with a brother. Most of you, your, your offering to God will go as a standing order or a direct debit. But that doesn't change what Jesus is saying here. If you have caused someone legitimate offence, whether that's because you've sinned against them or just because you've made a real mess of a situation, you are to go and you are to reconcile. You are to go and make peace with them. You are to go and say sorry. See, you are not in control of whether they accept your attempts at reconciliation. You may even need to carry the burden of them rejecting it. But Jesus says it is more important for you to go and seek that reconciliation than to try and complete your financial offering or do your religious duties to God. He said, I'm, I'll wait. I'll wait while you go and sort it out. You go and reconcile. I'll still be here. Come back when you're done. Don't delay. This is too serious. Jesus says we are in danger of hell. We are commanded to go and reconcile. And that doesn't mean you have to return to being best friends with that person. But it does mean that you need to be on the right terms with them as much as it depends on you. Verse 22 again says, But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, that means like idiot, empty head, airhead. It was basically a real word of contempt back then is answerable to the court. Anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. See, Jesus is saying, if our hearts are not right with each other, they are not right with God. Anger is like a fire. And if left untreated, it will spread and it will destroy. It isn't limited to that small friendship or that person. It will destroy. And Jesus calls you to reconcile. Who do you need to make peace with? Friends, who do you need to call on the way home from church today? Who do you need to make sure you have a meeting with this week? Don't delay. My fear this morning, though, is that when we come and hear a sermon, we'll hear the sermon and we'll leave mostly unchanged from it. Yes, point one, this command paints a beautiful picture of the world where everyone works on their anger issues. And the roads would be much nicer if we all did that, wouldn't it? Yes, point two, I need to reconcile with people. But perhaps you sit there thinking, well, I haven't really done anything wrong against anyone. God hasn't brought anyone to mind. I'm okay with that. 
So to tackle that this morning, what I'd like us to do is do some deep heart work this morning. I want to tell you of a regular um, sinful situation in, in my life, in the Popwell house. It's Sunday. It's the hardest day of the week for our family. And Rosie, my two-year-old, has again woken us up three times during the night because of a blanket. My five-year-old decides that 6 a.m. is a great time to wake everyone up, despite knowing that that is not the time he's allowed to get up. So it's seven o'clock in the morning. I'm attempting to breakfast my children. My mind is thinking about the busiest day of the week for me. And Noah, despite me asking him not to, has decided he wants to pour his own milk from a six-pinter this morning into his cereal. And now what we have is, well, we have a flood of milk on the floor. And my two-year-old, who's been shouting since 6 a.m. in the morning, I want porridge! I want... I've made a porridge. It's taken me 10 minutes to make this porridge. But now she rejects it because I put too many berries in, so it's too pink. And I snap. I don't know what your situation is, but I snap. The anger that I've been chewing on, it boils over and I unleash it against my two children and they do look deer, like deers caught in headlights, like when I snap. And let's just pause for a moment because it's really easy for me to blame my circumstances. I told you all those little things to show you. It's not really my fault, is it? But no, this passage, it calls us to stop and take stock. So let me diagnose my heart for you this morning. I am yelling at my kids, not because there's milk on the floor or because my porridge isn't suitable for Goldilocks. No, I'm angry because if truth be told, the kids are not doing what I want from them at 7 a.m. in the morning. And why does that result in anger? Well, it's because the lie that I believe in my heart, that I am more important than them, that they should be serving me. My value is more important than everyone else's. So I snap. They've broken my internal rules of how I think the world should work at 7.04 in the morning, with me as its God, and I snap. And that's the real issue. I think I'm the exception. Everyone to worship me. I want the world to reflect my image and not God's. But God is God, not me. Amen to that. I need to reconcile and say sorry to my kids. And I say sorry to them all the time. Like, it is a constant thing I need to do because I'm snapping. But I need to repent. My anger isn't because of my circumstances, although those things certainly don't help. But it's because I'm a sinner. I'm an angry murderer who wants my own ways. And I need to believe. I need to rest in and enjoy the gospel. That Jesus is Lord and not me that he was willing to humble himself and serve me even when I was his enemy. That's the price he paid. Perhaps the questions on screen can be the beginning of you getting to the real heart of your anger so that you can <laughs> repent and that you can enjoy the fullness of the gospel rather than doing my usual party trick, which is to blame the circumstances. Jesus' second example of reconciliation in Matthew 5 talks of a man who's taken to court by surprise or last minute. And he says, reconcile on your way. Because if you stand before the judge and are found in debt, you will go to debtor's prison. He ends it in verse 26. He says, truly I say to you, you will never get out unless, until you have paid the last penny. Friends, God is that judge. We are those debtors. 
This command that I thought I'd aced, I'm not like them. I now stand utterly condemned by. That's how serious this is. So what do we do? Well, throughout my prep for this message this morning, I kept on thinking about the story of Barabbas. Barabbas is a man in the Bible who's described as a robber, a leader of insurrection and a murderer. Luke 23 says this of Jesus. I think we're on the next one, Molly. Um, Pilate called together the chief priests, the rulers and the people, and said to them, You brought me this man as one who is inciting the people to rebellion. I have examined him in your presence and have found no basis for your charges against him. Neither has Herod, for he sent him back to us, and as you can see, he has done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, I will punish him and release him. But the whole crowd, crowd shouted, Away with this man! Release Barabbas to us! Barabbas had been thrown into prison for an insurrection in the city and for murder. And wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appealed to them again. But they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. For the third time he spoke to them. Why? What crime has this man committed? I have found no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore I will have him punished and he will be released. But with loud shouts, they insistently demanded that he be crucified. And their shouts prevailed. So Pilate decided to grant their demand. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, the one they asked for, and they surrendered Jesus to his will. See, the one who was guilty was set free. The one who was innocent was put to death. The one who deserved death was released. The one who deserved freedom was murdered. The more I look at Barabbas, the more I see myself. See, I've used careless and demeaning words. I've said some horrible things. I've held onto my anger for years. I've held onto my grudges for years. I still play back those stories in my head of what I could have said to that person to really get under their skin. I'm guilty of breaking the Sixth Commandment, just like Barabbas. But because Jesus cares about justice, because Jesus loves mercy, because Jesus was innocent, because Jesus was put to death, I get to walk free. Everyone in this room, we, we are Barabbases. But Jesus wants to reconcile us. He took the penalty so you and I can walk free. We don't know what happens to Barabbas. The story ends there for him. But for you and me, for anyone set free, we are called to depend upon his grace and follow in his footsteps. Jesus had cause to defend himself. He could have seeked vengeance. He had legions of angels at his command that he could have unleashed at a moment. Instead, Jesus gives himself for you and for me. He suffers in silent patience. He loves us and asks forgiveness for his executioners. He doesn't kill, but he dies a victim of murder so that he can give you and me life. In the sixth word, he calls us to follow, to renounce every form of murder, to be martyrs who give ourselves, to be human billboards for him, and so become ancient agents of his abundant life. Will you depend on him and live as life givers like Christ? Mm-hmm.